So, um, so a lot of people listening to this, Simon, um, are generally comedians and writers who are looking to potentially do some work on TV. So what I wanted to ask you first, like, what was your journey like getting into your first writer's role? Well, it was, for me, it was really random. You know, um, but I would say that my journey is um, is probably one of the ones where you look at and go, God, if, if, if he could get there, then I can get there. You know? Because <laughs> I, I, I left home when I was 11. I had a very, very chaotic uh, childhood, uh, sort of living in, you know, trailer parks and being homeless and a sort of escaped childhood abuse. And there was, by the time I was 18, I had a kid and there was no way that television or the media was a thing that, that I remotely thought would ever be available to someone like me. Mm. Um, and bit by bit, as I kind of uh, calmed down and matured and so on, um, I started becoming interested in being creative. I just sort of started writing things. I took, I took every opportunity I could get. Uh, by, the, by, by the time I was about 25, I had like, a job at Sainsbury's, and then I went and worked for the local council. And if there was any chance to do anything creative, I just took it, right? Mm. So, I mean, one of the first sort of really creative things I did that, I'm not going to say I was paid for it, but <laughs> I did it while I was being paid. Um, was like a staff newsletter and um, I, so I used to sort of write up all the news stories about you know there's a new photocopier down there or whatever <laughs> and then I realized um, that, that the way that the people that were putting it together and sending it out did it they made the first letter of every paragraph like really big mm. so I realized you could spare what spells swear words in the margins <laughs> but I didn't tell anyone and I got through about 20 weeks of this thing. And by the time I got to Christmas and I'd put the C word in the, in like, <laughs> literally, if you looked at it, you couldn't see it, they spotted it. And I nearly got fired for that. Uh, and then I, they gave me, um, they asked me to do these sort of um, promotional letters because there was this thing, I don't know if you have it where, where you grew up or if you have it. Are you in London? Mm. Are you? Yeah, I'm, you? I'm in London, yeah. I'm in London. Right. So some councils sort of do this thing where they... Um, they have like a deal with the local leisure centers and they have like mm -hmm. a card and you can sometimes get like 10% off a swim or 10% off sportswear or coffee or whatever. And they call it the passport to leisure. And um, I did this uh, without, I mean, I just did it. Uh, they, they wanted like 200 letters to go out to businesses to say, oh, you know, join up for this scheme because we've got 20,000 residents that are already on it. You know, make your offer a discount and we'll, um, you know, we'll promote you when we promote the scheme. So the one side of this letter said, you know, dear whoever it is who runs this shop, uh, we'd like to introduce you to like 20,000 really wonderful residents who love to, you know, go out, do things, da, da, da. maybe they'd love to come and spend money in your shop. And if you could just give them a discount, that'd be amazing. You'd be part of something wonderful, pull everyone together and all that. Mm. Um, and then on the back of the letter, and, and then at the end of the letter, it said, if this isn't for you, could you please just put the poster on the other side of this letter up in your shop? Mm. And the poster said, attention, passport to leisure holders, because that's <laughs> what it was called. This shop is shit, so stay away, right? <laughs> And that literally, that got like covered in the local press and the chief executive of the council, I was disciplined. I was, and by that point I started to realize, oh God, you know, I can't, I was very lucky not to be uh, sacked, but I, I've got to do something here, you know? So I, I started writing, I did like radio commercials, I did whatever I could mm. get. I wrote a lot of bad stuff. Um, and by the time I was 30, cause I was quite late, I'm 45 now. Um, but it was you don't look it, to be fair. <laughs> Bless <laughs> you. I like you. Uh, no, no, no. But I, um, I was about 35 when I got an agent. And what got me an agent was just this one script that um, we'd had our second kid because I had a 17-year-old when I was 35. Wow. I had a ba another baby then. And I just sort of felt, okay, if I'm ever going to make a go of this, it has to be now. So I... And I think all the stuff I'd done, all that kind of slightly um, wild stuff I'd done where I nearly lost my job and all that, which... My partner didn't thank me for 
So it was quite selfish, I suppose. But um, I channeled it all into this script and I wrote it in four days and uh, got an agent through it. Nice. Um, and it, but it took another two or three years after that of knocking on doors, sending that script around, getting meetings for people mm. to, to trust you, you know? Yeah. Um, and after that, I got my first, uh, it took a long, long time, but I got my first episode of something, which was an episode of a kid's show called Am I High? Sort of comedy kid's show. I was going to um, ask you about, I was so excited to oh, ask yeah? you about that because right. before you got, I think before you were writing on it, that was a show that I kind of grew up with. Was it starting about when I was about 14, 13, 14? So I was really interested to see what was the experience like going into a show which is basically an already running machine. It was amazing. So it was really funny because I, um, the first thing, and again, for listeners, for people that are thinking about careers in writing, you will find there will be a million reasons why you feel like you don't belong in that room, right? Mm. And for me at that point, I actually, all the people in it were older than me. Uh, I mean, I was, what was I, 35 then? So I thought, oh God, they're all going to be like 12. Nowadays, they probably are all 12. But back yeah. then they were all like, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I, it was more that they were all talking this language that I just didn't understand. Because one of the byproducts of coming from, shall we say, a disadvantaged background mm. is, is that you don't have access to culture, right? You don't, yeah. I'd never been on a plane till I was 30. I'd never been in uh, a theatre till I was in my 30s. I didn't, and they're all there in London and they're all talking about like, oh, did you go to the National? Yes, that was great, wasn't it? And I'm like, what the fuck is the National, right? I didn't know what the National Theatre was. <laughs> so you sort of feel like Mr. Ripley. Um, and that was really kind of alienating because you think, God, if it's like this on a kid's show, right? And I was obviously yeah. being disparaging towards kids TV because kids TV is wonderful. But you think, God, if it's like this, this, but what's it like on like big drama and so on? And, and in fact, it is this um, network of very privileged people. But I, um, but I, I was really lucky because I was, I was given an episode to do and I did a w really um, silly episode about a thing called, I can't remember, it was, there was a thing in the news about mosquito devices mm -hmm. that were supposed to deter teenagers from going into shops, ASBO teenagers from going into shops because they sent out some high frequency that only teenagers could hear, uh, which I don't know if it ever really took hold. So I, I did a device that was supposed to, it was like a kind of Thatcher character called Lady Blargar, and she had invented this device that you put it into schools and it zaps kids when they speak slang and tries to get them to talk posh. And, uh, and, and the net result of it all is that, that everyone in the school is talking like they're from a Jane Austen novel by the end of it. And it's part of her grand mind control plan because there was always a grand mind control plan in MI High. Oh, yeah. And the resolution of it, which I was really, I'm still to this day actually, I've never really thought about it, but we cast um, an actor who uses sign language as an undercover spy who's gone into the school to, uh, to investigate this, this technology and so on. Uh, and she was amazing. Um, and she, um, she came in and we made sign language the resolution of the story because the, the, uh, they ba she basically taught all the kids to swear in sign language <laughs> and uh, the system couldn't handle it and it overloaded the system. So that was, it was just a ridiculous experience. And then, um, and how it worked for me, and this is, a, I think, a lesson that all writers, when you get, when you get your first shot, the biggest thing might often be your second shot, not the first one, because my second shot was on that series that had another episode that had fallen over uh, and it wasn't working and they were shooting it in two days and they needed to completely rewrite the script. And they tried all the other writers uh, on, the, on the series and all of them have said no, uh, probably because they had a relationship with the person that was there before or whatever, which I totally respect. But I obviously was new and I didn't know anybody. So they said, well, we'll get him to do it then. 
and they asked me and and it, and it was like two days and they were like yeah whole thing two days um and so i said yes and i went to the set that they built and we rewrote the script around literally um around what they had what they'd already built what they'd already constructed and it was so funny because there was a moment where they had this they had like a whiteboard you know like you have whiteboards yeah, in yeah in, you know what a whiteboard is right? oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah you're familiar with this I'm, device i'm familiar I'm, <laughs> I, also work, I, I also work in a school as well, so it's like, yeah, oh, there you go. I'm, right, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of familiar, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it was a kind of, it was a whiteboard and they got it like, I don't know what you call it, vertically. And they got the story beats out. And I went in there and said, right, first thing. And I tilted the whiteboard horizontally. <laughs> and they were looking at me like I was some kind of fucking guru. You know, like, oh, we've never thought about putting the whiteboard on its other side. Uh, but anyway, and we, we worked it all out. We did it. It went really, really well. And... um from that, because of the speed of it, that was a company called Kudos, mm-hmm. who uh, are a powerhouse of British TV. And at that point, and they still are, I think, they were an amazing, um, just an amazing kind of foundry of, of encouraging new talent. And they, mm-hmm. from that moment, because I've done that, and it was a spy show, they actually offered me um, spooks, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, which I didn't end up doing for a, a kind of a tragic reason, but I then bumped onto another Kudos show. So, okay. Yeah. How did you, um, moving a bit from MI High, how did you manage to get the job of writing for the Cinemax show of Hunters with Melissa George? Well, that, that actually came from this, from MI High, bizarrely. Yeah. So, um, cautionary tales. So, um, <laughs> they, they had, after MI High, they had two shows in development. They had the next series of Spooks and they had a sci-fi show called Outcast, right, which didn't turn out too great. Mm. But they, uh, and they said, you know, do you want to do the next series of Spooks or do you want to do this new, the second series of this thing we're making called Outcast? And that was in space, right? So I was like, oh, oh, I'd love to do the space thing. And of course (laughs) it didn't get a second series. Then I got an interview for the next series of Spooks, but I had swine flu, right? Oh, Which is the last sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was really, really ill and I turned up late for the meeting and this guy came out and said, oh, come in, come in, you know. And I thought he was the runner because he was like, do you want me to get you a cup of tea? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I'll make you a cup of tea. Don't worry. He said, no, 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 I'll make you. And we had this row over who makes the tea. <laughs> and we sat down and he didn't really, he, he was actually turned out was the producer. He'd just got there and he didn't know really why I was there. No one had told him, you know, some, we were interviewing Simon for the next thing, uh, for the next series. And, uh, and his boss came in and his boss had only just really met him because they'd only just hired him. And it was this most disastrous meeting in which in the end they asked me like, who's your favourite Spooks character and what will you do with them? And so I went on about this guy, Adam, because I just Googled it. And, uh, and it turns out Adam died the previous series, right? Oh. So uh, it was a disastrous meeting, but because I had a really good relationship with them and so on, they, they said, we've got this other thing with the guy that used to do the X-Files, Frank Spotnitz. Mm. Uh, it's a spy show, it's Cinemax, it's BBC One. Do you want to come and do that? And I knew his name because I remembered being uh, 19 in a council flat with a baby, watching episodes of The X-Files come up and seeing the name Frank Spotnitz. And I always used to wonder, who's Frank Spotnitz? Such a cool name. So I got to meet him and it was honestly, I mean, the show, it's, it wasn't the hugest success, but we got to be in an American writer's room for a year mm. under that system. He made us all producers on the show. We got to be in the casting, the edit. We got to go down to the set. I got to... Um, uh, sort of helped set up a stunt where we flipped a car and although the, you can say what you like about the show it was the best learning ground ever mm. for writing kind of bigger dramas bigger shows because you just saw every single aspect of the machine so and all of that came from MI High and all of that came from writing rude words in the margins of um, <laughs> Hastings Borough Council newsletters so there you go. That's amazing um, what's the difference then between uh, if there is one what's the difference between 
British writing rooms and American writing rooms? Well, they're radically different. I mean, we, so we, um, the writers' rooms that I have now, that I run now, are kind of a hybrid, but they're nothing like what Frank did. Frank brought the entire system over. So what happens is you are paid uh, every week to be in the room and you're paid well. So it is like a salary job almost. Mm. You also get an episode commission. You get to write an episode that is usually overwritten by the showrunner because you are there to sort of serve the showrunner as it was, mm. as it were. Um, and, but you're also a producer. Now, in, in, in America, they'll call it anything from co-executive producer to supervising producer, associate producer, whatever it is. And that means you get a credit on every single episode because you have helped to, you help out on every episode. And he was such a, I mean, he is just a force for good. He's amazing. He, he lets anybody and everybody kind of write any part of any episode. So you would be in there and he, somebody new would join, like a student would join. He would always, I mean, if you ever want to experience this, definitely reach out to him. I'm sure he would sort of mm. give people a shot. Uh, having like a day's experience and there was somebody there on work experience one day and he got them to rewrite like a two of my scenes in front of me really the point wow. was, yeah yeah but the point is that's that's who he is it's this collegiate approach it's 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 about like can you make this better and and, and he teaches you not to have an ego and mm. not to be precious about things and to be entirely open to new ideas and new voices and i think so i think it's um the american system the money isn't re still really isn't here for that in this country but I, I think it's amazing if you can get that experience it's absolutely incredible so how did you go from the writers room right for being a, from being a writer on tv shows to actually being the creator of your own bbc show it was there were two steps so when uh we finished hunted mm -hmm. uh they started developing a second series which didn't happen and i was offered the chance to go in there again at the same time I was offered uh, an episode of a show on BBC One called New Tricks, mm. which, depending on who you, who you talk to, is, is meant to be a comedy drama, but I accept <laughs> it's comedy in the broadest, broadest sense. <laughs> but at that point, it was sort of nine million viewers, you know, uh, a week live, um, which is not an experience that is easy to get now because there aren't many shows that do that. So I left to do that, and everyone, everyone thought I was crazy. But I, I loved it from the minute I got there because... It was full of sort of people that I'd seen as a kid in the 80s on TV. It was, it was all about a kind of that, that nostalgia, you know, that I think the 80s kind of evokes for anyone that, was, that grew up in the 80s. I was five in 1980, I was 14 in 1989. You know, that was my childhood. Um, and TV was my escape, right, when I was a kid. So I'd seen, I'd seen Dennis Waterman and Dennis mm -hmm. Lawson and all, all those people. Um, and I wrote an episode of that that was sort of the weirdest one that ever done. It was about the Stasi and it was about recycling and it was about all these random things. And they gave me uh, the two-part special for the series after. We went to Gibraltar, they, like they were going somewhere yeah. abroad, you know. <laughs> um, and so I got to go to Gibraltar with that and that got like massive rate ratings, quite good reviews. Um, and it was just such a, a kind of wonderful experience because that, that also should say, that's where you get the live yeah. TV thing where I went to Morrison's to like get some drinks, you know, for the night <laughs> and people in Morrison's are talking about, well, you're watching new tricks tonight. You know? uh, and that led to um, getting onto a show called the Musketeers, which I wrote the last episode of the second series and then got the job of largely because we were the last people left in the room of co-show running it with another, with another guy called Simon. Um, and we show ran the third series. We had to get it green lit first. We had to go and pitch the third series very, very hard because it wasn't a huge ratings performer, but it sold really well internationally. So we got the third series commission. We were showrunners on it. 
And then because we'd done that, because we'd been, you know, we had the credit, the executive producer credit, we had a, we didn't get created by credit on the third series, but we got a series three buy, right? Mm. So it was kind of, because we had kind of changed quite a bit. Um, from that moment onwards, um, you start to get taken a bit more seriously uh, by the industry. Um, and the, uh, the company that had um, the rights to Terry Pratchett's novels or, or yeah. Terry Pratchett's watch novels, uh, they'd been trying to get that off the ground or a show based on those particular books, the watch books, for quite some time, for um, about seven years, um, and hadn't really got anywhere for, for whatever reason. You know, I mean, I think they'd done the thing where they took the books around to everybody and maybe people didn't quite get the books. They'd, take, they'd written loads of scripts and that hadn't happened. And they just said, look, we want to try something different. Can you do that? And it took us, it took us five years I mean, uh, uh, to sort of get there, but we, we got a version of it that people were interested in buying. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that was, again, all goes back to funny newsletters in Hastings yeah. Borough Council. Well, that's it. It's just about person. Well, it's just about perseverance, really, isn't it? And just making sure that, like, if you're believing in this project, then you're just pushing for it. You're pushing for it. And just, you write, you, you write yeah. stuff as well, right? Because you're. Um, so I looked you up because I was trying to find your um, <laughs> Carl Wolf comedian. There's a lot yeah. of hits, but yes. I can't find me no no YouTube videos. What's going on here? Carl? No, no YouTube video, no YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> so what um what is because what I'm starting to do now is was this now the second series of the podcast? This right. Well, now the video that we're doing now will be put up, will be put will be put up on YouTube. When, when oh, cool. everything is released. So what? Yeah. So I'm starting to, at the moment, write sketches and stuff, and just send them out and send them out to people for like podcast and audio and podcast and audio for. Brilliant. So that's really what I my thing my thing is at the moment, and I'm looking to potentially start branching out to you know TV producers and that. But I think at this point, um, I just need to find my I just think I need to find my writer's voice. To be honest, at this point, um, can I ask, have you have you done stand up? Have you actually I, done it? Yeah, like like for about nearly three years now. What's that like? I mean, I've got to know. What's <laughs> that? Because I, I I cannot think of yeah. anything more terrifying than 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 stand up. You know, it, like it's honestly the best and most revealing experience and most of anything you could you could ever ever do, um, and. It's just something you've got to keep working on. Honestly, it's the best choice I think I've ever made in my life to start trying to do this. Just well, it's there's nothing that beats a live audience. Honestly, right. no, nothing beats a live audience, whether it be the them loving you or them completely not engaging with you at all. Oh my god! I, can't, yes. I mean, wow. Yeah. That's uh, sorry, Karen. <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm, t I'm just thinking because I, I was thinking about um, when I did new tricks, I got asked, somebody in our family got married and I got mm. asked to do like a speech because you'll be funny because we all like that show. So, <laughs> and, it was like, and it turned out, I, I found out five minutes before giving the speech that, uh, that, uh, that was supposed to be funny, that everyone in the audience was a, uh, was a gangster. Oh, right? God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're all, and it was really, uh, it, it went okay, but some <laughs> shit fell well flat, man. Do you know oh, good. Like? <laughs> I mean, the only, it's interesting you talked about oversaturation. Guys, you made it through part one, so why don't you click up and go to part two for the rest of this conversation. See you there. <laughs>